0: This escape pod is rated R for one sexual scene. Escape pod, 249. July 15th, 2010. Little Match Girl by Heather Shaw. Hi there. Welcome to Escape Pod. I'm your host and editor, Mer Lafferty. And we're back to our everyday programming. I hope you enjoyed the Hugo offering, and if you are a Hugo voter, be sure to get in your votes by July 31st. And speaking of the Worldcon, I hope you come by and say hi if you're there, because I will be. I'm excited about this week's story, which reminds us that no matter how technological we get, peoples and teenagers, true natures will likely dominate. Teens will always rebel. So we present to you Little Match Girl by Heather Shaw. Heather Shaw's fiction has appeared in cool places such as Polyphony, Strange Horizons, and the year's best fantasy. When she's not working on her novel, she enjoys Aikido, dancing, crafts, gardening, and hanging out with her husband, Tim Pratt, and their son, River, at their home in Berkeley, California. Her web presence begins at www.hlshaw.com. This story was first published in the unusual anthology Tumbarumba in two thousand eight. And Storytime is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Little Match Girl by Heather Shaw. A new shipment of Tweak must have hit the missions over the weekend. M kept her eye on the woman in front of her who was shaking and staggering across the sidewalk. At a distance, the woman almost looked as if she were listening to some experimental music, her erratic movements accompanied by unheard notes, brilliantly interpreting the difficult tonalities. But as M got closer, the absence of headphones and the glazed eyes shattered the illusion. The woman staggered and shuddered and muttered, squatting and straightening, drifting across M's path. M did her best to miss the addict as she passed, and the woman nearly stumbled into her even so. This close, the burnt metal smell was nearly overpowering the other common mission smells—wine, vomit, phlegm, and feces. The woman must have felt M pass near, as her drug dance took on swatting movement, and she began shrieking and flailing as if assaulted by a swarm of bugs. M hurried on, only stopping once she was at the light on the corner to glance back. Other pedestrians were crossing the street to avoid the tweaking woman. Tweakers were like human bombs on random courses over the city sidewalks. Coming near, as Em had done, set them on a faster course, but it was even more dangerous to touch one. They could rip you to shreds, and they gripped with more strength than their bone structure would take, breaking their fingers but not letting go. Em had only seen such an interaction from across the street once, but even so, she'd had nightmares for months afterwards. She had to jump through the drug flight patterns of several more tweakers before finally making it to the lobby doors of her day job. It wasn't that M disapproved of drug use. You just had to be savvy about which drugs you took. Back before she had to get a day job, she was a match girl, much to the delight of the guys on the club scene. Match wasn't a wimpy drug, but it didn't turn you into a murderous street zombie either. It was also expensive, a designer where-it's-at drug that the tweakers couldn't afford anyway. She still vividly recalled the last time she took match. Her best friend Nora had scored a full matchbook, so they splinted several times during the night. Matchbooks looked similar to the old-fashioned fire starters her grandfather used to pick up in bars, but instead of fat redheads, match was pointed at its blue ends, which were tipped with a euphoric drug. They each ripped off a matchstick and shoved the pointed tip into their upper arm, wedging the tiny piece of wood just under the skin where it would release the drug for the next three hours, keeping them on an even high. Since they were flush that night, they each did both arms. They wore skimpy tank tops so that their matches would show. The little rectangular bump and smear of blood was a signal to other match users, making it easier to match up. After splinting, they had twenty minutes to get back to the club. Nira hailed them a cab, scowling at the cabbie who waggled his eyebrows at their match wounds. Not for you, and we're not burning yet, so don't even think about trying. We're going to the Flint tonight, but don't try to go the long way. We're not tourists. The cabbie returned her scowl and pulled into traffic, driving directly but dangerously, weaving in and out of traffic and screeching to a halt in front of the f- club. As Nera tossed him his fare, he called, Have fun, little sluts. Old fart, M scoffed. They were match girls, not sluts. No one these days mixed the two up. The music hit them full in the face as they entered the club, bumping hard and fast and making their upper arms itch as it helped bring on the drug. Most of the inside of the club was made to look like the inside of a huge redwood tree with gnarls of woods for benches along one side and a tall burl of wood making a bar along a wall around the inside of the tree was a ramp leading to little nooks rising in a spiral toward the top of the room. It was hard to tell from the bottom how many of these were occupied since they all dipped down lower than their openings so people wouldn't accidentally roll out when matching up. For now, Nera and M headed out onto the dance floor. Everyone was beautiful. Em swayed her hips, threw her head back and forth to the beat, but kept her arms down, crossed in front of her sometimes. The better to signal her intention. Soon, a boy with a match mark on his bicep came up and started grinding against her. He felt wonderful, soft and strong and supple, and as she pushed her body into his, she felt as if they were melting together. "'A good match!' he shouted over the beat. It sounded to M that he used her mouth to say this, which did indeed indicate a good match. She nodded her consent, and they used one another's legs to walk themselves up the spiral. They peered down into the cubbies, but the first few turns were all occupied by early matchers. It was near the top that they finally found their own little nook to fall into. M melted into the guy, became him, as they shed their clothing and began matching up. She felt the blood rush to his penis, which felt as if it were hers, and marveled at the feel of her breasts, which felt as if they were his, under his, her hands. She loved this feeling of being the other person during sex, of knowing what it felt like to plunge a cock into a willing girl, her softness against firm angles of her borrowed boy body. It was a sensation that was disorienting at first and that some claimed made you gay, but M never bought that. She only liked feeling her own body through someone else and had no interest in, say, having unmatched sex with anyone other than boys. The one time she had had matched sex with another woman wasn't nearly as good as it was with men. She liked this feeling of other, and she pitied the conservatives who didn't know how sex felt for their partners. She felt strongly that matching up made her a better lover overall. It was early in the morning when her last matchstick wore off, and she practically rolled down the ramp to the main floor to find Nira. They giggled to one another as they compared match-ups, stumbling outside to hail a cab home. The next day, M got up around noon, pulling a robe on to hide her match marks from her mother, even though she wouldn't say anything about them. Her mom had had cancer when M was a baby and was one of the first recipients of the breakthrough cure back before they discovered the side effects. Now she was in permanent remission from the cancer, but she was also in per- permanent remission from reality. It was only five years later that she stopped talking, and by the time M was ten, her mother was completely voided, not talking, not reacting to anything, only going through a daily routine on autopilot. She would get up and get dressed, sit at the table, eat when food was put in front of her, use the bathroom, shower, and sit on the sofa until it was time to eat again, eventually making her way back to the bedroom to go to sleep. It was sort of like living with an unuseful robot. But Em thought she saw her mother notice things, such as her match marks, and she didn't want to risk upsetting her, even if she never felt the consequences. She was glad she'd covered up, because her father was sitting at the dining room table with her mother this morning, even though it was a Wednesday. He looked up at her when she came in the dining room. Sit down, Emily, he said. I have some bad news. Em sat nervous. He knew she went out with her friends most nights, but she was pretty sure he didn't know about the match. She didn't want to know what he'd do if he found out, either. I was laid off yesterday, he said simply. He sat there for a moment, then put his head in his hands. Em's stomach growled in the stretch of silence that followed, but she didn't feel much like eating. I don't know how to say this, Emily, so I'll just... Well, the company is having some troubles. Financial troubles. So even though I'm over retirement age and have worked there for 37 years, there's no pension. The only money we have right now is what I managed to put away to help offset caring for your mother after I died, which honestly isn't enough for the three of us to live on, let alone send you to college next fall. Chills shivered over the outer layer of M's skin. She swallowed. Dad, if I don't go to college, I can't get an unjacked job. I know M, and I'm too old to get a job. No one hires in new over the age of 40 these days, let alone 60. Honey, I hate to ask you this, but... And then, to her horror, M's father broke into ragged sobs. Em's first few weeks at the Corp were terrifying. She'd never walked through this part of town before, so the tweakers set her nerves on edge before she'd even gotten there. She entered the lobby, where a snotty receptionist handed her a number to pin to her shirt and told her to go through the 28th floor. She sat down on a folding chair with the other new hires, each one younger than her and happier, too. Her father had called in his last few favors to get Em hired in as a jacker at her age. Corporations like to hire at 15, since kids that age recovered from the surgery better than 18-year-olds like Em. She'd been on a college track, which meant eventually she would have been a manager or even a jack surgeon. Only the poor kids dropped out of high school sophomore year to get the jack surgery. She glanced around the room and was relieved that she didn't see anyone from her school here. They kept her in the recovery ward with the other kids after surgery, though M stayed a week longer than her first group and ended up joining another class altogether. The managers grumbled about it, throwing off their numbers. They'd had to bump some poor kid back a week to make room for her in the new class and now had a gap in her original group. It was not a good start. So she did her first real week at work without going home to try and make it up to the corp and get on the manager's good side again, though it didn't really work. The first time she swallowed the yellow feed pills, which were supposed to make her body adapt more easily to her desk chair jacking into the back of her neck, she threw them up before they took effect. She screamed as the chair jacked in anyway, soon after, and they'd had to stop work and call a technician. She was on manual jack-in for weeks before they finally trusted her to keep the drugs down and jack-in automatically. Jacking-in was horrible, and the feed was the opposite of her experience with Match. It drew in her focus so tight she wasn't even aware of the room around her, or even of herself. She became the columns of numbers, of code, focused on minutia she never would have noticed normally. The narrow focus, or maybe it was just the feed itself, or the jacking in, gave her throbbing headaches. She had to sit and refocus her eyes on the greater world around her before attempting to walk home after jacking out. For the first week, she just stayed at work, colliding with walls on her way to sleep on a cot in the break room, to adjust to the sensation of coming down before attempting to walk home. She was exhausted even when she started coming home at nights, barely more active than her mother. Her father was pathetically kind to her, grateful and ashamed that his daughter had to go to a jack job to support his family. He'd tried to get a job driving a cab, cleaning a school, anything that didn't require jacking, but no one would hire him. He spent his days reading news feeds and trying to organize a legal case to sue for his pension back and would occasionally tell M about how it might happen and then she could go to school again, but she almost would rather not hope for it anymore. It was after the first year at the job that Em finally got her vacation. By this point, her father didn't even try to suggest a family vacation, but encouraged Em to do whatever she wanted. You've more than earned it, honey. So Em went and found Nira, hoping her old friend had a break in her classes and access to some match. No one does match anymore, Em. That's like three at-drugs ago. We're going to do this new one I just tried last week called Flame. It's the most amazing thing you've ever felt. Em wanted to cry. It was the only the second day of her seven-day vacation, and she'd really been looking forward to the freedom of being someone else for a few hours, or even a few days. Can't you get some match for old times' sake? You don't want match if no one else is doing it. What's the point of that? Neera asked. She had a point. Besides, flame connects you with everyone, not just some guy you pick up at a club. You'll see. Don't worry about having to afford it on a jacker's salary, either. It's on me. Come on, it'll set you free, make you forget about your horrible day job and everything. It's more than those poor kids you work with get on their vacations. They went together to the dealer's house. He barely recognized Em, whose skin was dull and hair limp from too much feed, and when he realized who she was, he looked at her suspiciously. You don't have a day job now where you do feed, do you? He asked before handing over the brown paper baggie with the drug in it. Nera snorted and answered for her. "'What, do you think she's a jacker?' She said it like it was a nasty bug. "'Please, M's where it's at. She's one of us.' She looks tired. "'She's just been partying too hard. She's cool, I swear. Look, I don't sell flame to jackers. It's just not— Look, she's fine. Just give us the flame already.' Back at her house, Neera opened the bag and pulled out a tiny glass vial filled with an iridescent liquid which pulsed and swirled and changed colors. It was one of the most gorgeous things M had ever seen. She took it from Neera, cupping it carefully in her hand, transfixed by the beauty of it. Pinch the lid, then snort it. Em looked up at Neera slowly, reluctant to tear her gaze away from the liquid. Neera laughed at her. It's how you fix with this stuff, M. Pinch the lid, put it up to your nose, then snort it. "'Oh!' M continued to cradle the vial in her hand, unwilling to part with such lovely colors in such an inelegant way. "'It seems a shame to put something so pretty up my nose. "'Swallow it! Shove it up your ass! Pour it down your ear! "'Are you going to fix or not, Em?' M sighed, pitched off the tip of the tiny glass container, and smiled as the colors slowly swirled out, tickling at her nose. She put her face in the colors, exclaiming over the brilliant hues that now seemed to surround her. Pink strands found their way up her nose. Blue ribbons streamed in her ears. Orange tears flowed backward into her eyes. Purple ran down her throat. She could smell orange blossoms and chocolate chip cookies. New book smell, car exhaust, wet dog, new baby, salt, burning metal, sweat, shampoo, the stuff they used to mop up her elementary school with. She'd expected a falling or a floating sensation, but instead she felt herself expanding, her borders dissolving and her substance, herself, drifting out, unconfined, free to float away like the colors did when she'd opened the vial. She was aware of Nira, touched her mind, saw through her eyes for a moment. She could see herself. No, she could see her physical form, her shell, sinking to its knees on the soft carpet of Nira's bedroom. How small and sad she looked there, how limited. She was distinctly aware of the world stretching away from her and enveloping her, and she shot out, exploring, discovering, remembering. She touched minds and their shells, tasting their different textures, until she saw the pattern, saw how each shell was only a part of a fractal, how they all fit together, expanding on the same theme. Each part had tiny parts that had tiny parts, many small worlds making bigger worlds until it was all one and many. "'She saw her own place in the worlds, "'how it had expanded and remained stable, "'how she combined with other parts to make new sections, "'how she fit neatly wherever she went, "'free and pieced in at the same time. "'She swelled, no, dissipated, Beyond the confines of the building where her body knelt, she felt the presence of others like her expanding for the first time, twisting their patterns to join the new ones, tasting the entire world spread out before them, beginning to grok what they were experiencing. Here was her house, with the confined consciousness of her parents tucked neatly within. She felt the sadness of her father, his despair at feeling useless and old. She saw the caged mind of her mother, throwing itself against its shell, desperately trying to communicate with her father, but trapped inside, silent and invisible. Em felt a small thrill. She'd always thought her mother wasn't truly gone, but was horrified to find out what it was really like for her. She wondered briefly if flame would let her mother out. As she grew, she felt more than human consciousness reaching out to her. She felt the angry fear of alley cats, the delight of a domesticated dog pleasing its master, the hunger of the pigeons. A deciduous tree, native to the Midwest, cried out for water. A cactus mused on prickling a nearby toddler. A calla lily yearned for just a tad more sun. Soon, rocks sang their slow song to M, a bass line under the high giggle of running water. Even man-made things, houses, trains, trash, vibrators, jewelry, joined in the great fractal ruckus of the beautiful, vast, one world. For it was one, one whole with many parts, each influencing, connecting up to one another, joining to create the single entity that was the world. M lost herself, her part of the pattern, for a time. She hadn't really worried about getting back, as she was too distracted by the lovely, lovely revelation that everything was one great thing. But after a time, she began to miss her part, and she worked on finding a path back to where she fit, where she'd left her shell that she used to play out her small, tiny part of the hole. She wasn't at near any longer, nor was she at home. On her way to check work, she flew past the tweakers, their erratic, dangerous dance, beautiful from her new vantage point, creating exquisite counterpoints in the great pattern. She saw how a few of them weren't on tweak at all, but were a result of an unlikely but horrible chemical reaction. And it was there she found herself. There was her shell, moving in counterpoint, staggering along the street, swaying and vacant, being dodged by her young co-workers as they hurried down the street to work. It was an eerie dance, and she watched her body for a long while. She thought she should panic, but it was hard to when the sun was so beautiful on the rooftops and the seagulls were talking excitedly about the winter coming. She spent a while among them, and when she looked for her body again, it was gone. She thought of looking for it again, but then, beyond the quay, there was the sea, the shining, rolling sea, going on and on. story. Oftentimes, a downward spiral of destruction is slow and you can't pinpoint the one thing that led you there. However, other times it's frightening to realize that one little choice you make will change things forever. The other thing about this story that makes me uneasy is that as a teenager, I always had the dream of just wanting a pill to take, a knowledge pill that would tell me everything I needed to know so I wouldn't have to work. I was lazy. I suppose kids these days want a built-in USB drive in their spine to upload all their information from thumb drives. Easy knowledge, easy in, easy consumption. But what I never considered was that if we created that door, then, as this story tells us, it can swing both ways, and it can go out as well as in. Heather Shaw was inspired to write Little Match Girl by the meth addicts that she walked past in San Francisco's Mission District on her way to work. She'd cross the street to avoid the meth heads, who seemed a little too gone on their drug, all the while sipping her coffee so she'd be alert enough to perform when she got into work. It made her think about the differences and similarities between legal and illegal drugs, the different drugs used by different socioeconomic classes, and how certain drugs are not only accepted, but sometimes even expected by our employers. And as my daughter ages, I'm seeing the world through my father's eyes. She wants to be an inventor, but inventing includes creating potions that will make Pokemon real. She likes the idea of going into space, but is offended if we say that she must work harder than reading Captain Underpants to get there. She's only seven. She'll go through umpteen career considerations and will likely not be an astronaut. And I'm not saying that to put her down. Are you the career that you wanted to be when you were seven? I am, however, making it as possible as I can that she get there, as long as she actually wants to. We've gotten her space books, a telescope, and other educational stuff that she does look at when she's not playing. I'm 37, but I still have that connection to being a child. I understand the need and want to just play, and not get pressure of the parents to stop reading Ramona for the umpteenth time, but I also feel a connection to my parents. Having a child you know is bright, and you want her to fulfill her full potential and achieve her dreams. I don't want to push too hard, but I want to push enough. This parenting thing's tough. I'm sure in ten years, my biggest fears will be boys and drugs, not whether she's rereading Captain Underpants again.
1: Hey, it's Bill with the feedback for episode 243. I'm alive, I love you, I'll see you in Reno. By Viler Captain and read by R. Murr Lafferty. This story, about a pair of star-crossing lovers, provoked some sharp divisions, with some listeners feeling like it fell flat, and others loving the journeys. Sanguine V said, Unfortunately, as many have pointed out, if you dig a bit deeper, it starts to unravel. The physics weren't well used at times, and it can be hard to stay focused when the metaphor is false. The relationship was borderline abusive at times, with the 25 years of happy marriage and kids just blinked away makes the main character sound like a weird obsessive-compulsive. I might run away at relativistic velocities too, if someone like that were after me. Ewa Goner said, There's no particular reason why this story did work for me, but it did. Very much. The story brought on a combined sense of joyful nostalgia and wistfulness that I really, really appreciated. And that's it for this week. Be sure to check out and vote on the ongoing pseudopod and the newly begun escape pod flash contest on our forums at forums.escapeartists.net. Be sure to comment on this week's story there, and I'll be back here next week with the feedback episode 244, Non-Zero Probabilities.
0: Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. All other rights are reserved by our authors. If you like this week's story, please drop a dollar or five into our PayPal jar at escapepod.org so we can keep supporting our authors. If that's not possible, just tell a friend or blog about us or Twitter about us. We're Escape Podcast on Twitter. Also check out our sister podcasts, Pseudopod for Horror and Podcastle for Fantasy, at their.org domains. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. We close with a quote from Author Unknown, who wrote the Psalm of the Addict. King Heroin is my shepherd, I shall always want. He maketh me to lie down in the gutters. He leadeth me beside the troubled waters. He destroyeth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of wickedness for the effort's sake. Yea, I shall walk through the valley of poverty, and will fear all evil, for thou, heroine, art with me. Thy needle and capsule tried to comfort me. Thou strippest the table of groceries in the presence of my family. Thou robbest my head of reason. My cup of sorrow runneth over. Surely heroin addiction shall stalk me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the damned forever. We'll see you next week. Until then, be mighty.